0: This podcast is a proud member of the Cyphercast Network. Discover more at Cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at CyphercastNet.
1: Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I am Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the Path of Suns. Today we sing two spells. With the careful gaze of the Grigori, we discuss the city of Saterine in the Invisible Sun. And then, with A Distant Light Pierces the Mist, we tour the array of current television shows with surreal elements. Join us on the Path of Suns, and we may uncover a secret or two.
0: With the careful gaze of the Grigori, we discuss an aspect of the Invisible Sun RPG in detail. We're revisiting the Indigo Sun this time, and we're going to be dropping in on the great city of Saturn. Ah, glistening jewel of Indigo. Ah, city of notions. Oh, city of secrets, visions, and mysteries. What have you become? So, Saturn has been around for a long time. uh, Thousands of years. Um... Do we, I don't think we need really much of an overview of Saturn before we just start talking about its history. Uh but needless to say, uh Saturn is gonna be one of the focal points of the Invisible Sun uh role-playing game. And it is a large city uh that's been kind of destroyed by the war, which we have talked about before. Uh so this city has been around for a long time, uh, but prior to its founding it there was actually a city in its place that was created by this pre-human race called the Arabest, which is interesting. Uh, there really wasn't any mention of the Arabest in any of the other Kickstarter information that we got. Uh, you know, We know about humans and Eldebrin, uh, and we know that some of them are Visley, but there really wasn't a whole lot of talk about other sorts of Uh, ancient civilizations so here we have a mention of you know a civilization that was around and on the mm, under the sun indigo Uh, so there was this city that had existed on the site of saturn before saturn was founded and this city was i want to say it was ruled by this ancient alien entity called the angular serpentine and I think I'm correct when I say it was ruling over this city. Uh, I have it in my notes that it ruled over it, so hey, we're gonna go with that. Uh, in your I don't campaign, want to read through the... Yeah, in my campaign, that's totally true. So this this is a, another creature that uh, we really hadn't touched on before in any of our our notes. Uh, you know, we walked through the whole light side of the Path of Suns, and we didn't have any you know suggestion that there was. An ancient alien race out there that might still be around, but hey, here we go. This is the angular serpentine and it originated from uh, these far-off half worlds of Narvago Uh, And it notes that this place probably doesn't exist anymore Uh, So when I was uh, reading through this I said to myself well, that's that's really interesting because all the information that we've gotten about Uh, the setting for invisible sun has focused on uh, the suns and the uh, worlds that exist underneath those suns. But it sounds like Narvago might be a place that exists outside of the path of suns, or at least it existed. So that's, that's an interesting idea that suggests there might be, you know, other things that are not on the path of suns which wasn't something I'd really thought about.
1: It, it did read like this was somehow off the Path of Suns. Um, it also uh, suggests... It might just be that it was before the Path of Suns. But either way, it's interesting to think that there's something outside of the path, because the path is is described in many ways that make me think it's timeless. Mm-hmm. But this suggests a time-bound component to it.
0: Yeah, it could be timeless, and... We also know that the Path of Suns uh, maps to your soul. So perhaps the Path of Suns is a concept that arose when humans came about. uh, And the Arabest are a pre-human race. So if we uh, move forward just a little bit, uh, we can get into the actual founding of Saturn. So thousands of years ago, Saturn was founded on the site of this ancient Arabest city. And it was created as a trading hub for merchants who were selling thoughts, ideas and feelings and all sorts of other things, Uh, which, you know, here we go again with, uh, you know, the idea that on, in the actuality people are uh, selling commodities that aren't standard. They're not what we're thinking of. Like, Hey, I'm, you know, going to be selling, you know, corn from my fields and things like that no here in saturn we're selling you know ideas we're selling hey we're probably selling just the uh the feeling that poetry gives you when you go to a poetry reading rather than the poems themselves uh and these these things were generated in emotion mills which uh eventually came to saturn from the unfathomable archipelago uh so when i was reading through this stuff like there, there was. I, I'm not sure if it was an article that uh, uh, Shauna had posted a while back, but she had talked about working with Monty Cook and how he likes to come up with interesting names that he fills in the details on them later. And when I was reading these sentences, like it just read like, okay, unfathomable archipelago is a. That's a fun idea. And it, it's probably just a fun combination of words to put together and say, well, we'll figure out if we need to, you know, fill the details for that later. Um, it's like
1: word jazz.
0: Yeah, word jazz. Uh, I, <laughs> I called it word salad, but I wasn't sure if that was the right term. Um,
1: That's usually more derogatory than I think you're intending.
0: Yeah, it, it wasn't derogatory. Uh, but yeah, word jazz is probably what we should go with. Yeah. Um, so when I was reading through this, you know, like, boy, every time I think about emotion mills, it just sounds like they're probably, you know, pushing people in and out of these things, sort of like, you know, a, a modern milking uh, facility where you just move cows in and out, you hook them up, you do your thing, and then they, you kick them right out. Like, what if what if they're just, you know, in the emotion mills, they're, they're hooking people up, sucking their emotions out, sucking out all of their experiences, and then just, you know, kicking them out as emotionless husks. Like, that sounds like a pretty cool place to live. <laughs> or work.
1: Yeah, it, I think it could go various ways. And whether you want to suggest this is parasitic in some way, that it, that if you donate a memory, then it is no longer yours. Mm-hmm. And thus it is a destructive process to create these memory gl- uh, globes or spheres. Uh, or it could just be that this is information that can be copied without with, with fidelity, uh, or maybe you know cheap copies that can be reproduced. Uh, don't you know? Uh, don't destroy the original. But the authentic the, the the most authentic version are those that are destructive of the original. Uh, it's all you know. This could go a variety of directions, uh, and and it might even be up to the uh, individual home games to decide how this works uh, and what sort of stories you want to tell based on it.
0: Mm-hmm. I like the idea of having, uh, you know, the number of generations that uh, you you are down the line from the original emotion, uh, that emotion becomes muddied and uh, distorted, much like a mixtape that you've passed from friend to friend, uh, you know, way back before we had CDs, which destroyed the concept of mixtapes. Um, so anyway, uh, the current state of Indigo, uh, this this is the largest, uh, current state of Saturn, not Indigo, sorry. Uh, this is the largest city in Indigo. And at one time it, it was home to tens of millions of people. So this, this was a massive city, but it was basically destroyed by the war. It was reduced to ruin and rubble. And currently the population is unknown. Uh, it's, it's hard for people to count and, there is another wrinkle that makes it difficult to estimate how many people are living in the city, uh, because much of the city seems to be automated by these magical constructs called thought forms. So these things carry out tasks that keep the city running. So these are your going to your your basic services around the city. Thought forms are going to be taking care of it. Um, so it seems like these thought forms, as magical constructs, could be viewed as uh fairly human or elderbrin like or even sentient if seeing them from a distance uh interferes with any sort of estimates you might put together as to you know the population density of a certain district Uh, but the inhabitants of saturn are slowly rebuilding the city they're trying to reclaim areas that haven't been completely devastated and Where we're going to be picking up our campaigns um, out of the box, there are going to be reclaimed areas that feel like they are fairly normal pre-war. So you're going to have nobles and artisans, merchants and criminals inhabiting uh, these reclaimed areas of the cities uh, of the city. Uh, And another way to describe it is these reclaimed areas feel like oases in a desert of desolation.
1: And this provides a a, a useful mix uh, for people to design their games, and this goes back to some kind of design goals I've seen from Monty Cook over many different games. Uh, Historically, some people have liked urban uh, settings for their RPGs. Others have liked to delve into dungeons, and others wanted more outdoor exploration. This is an attempt to make Saturine a location in which you can do all of the above because it turns different bombed-out zones into a combination of outdoor exploration and even dungeon sort of delving, and having it immediately up against uh, an urban environment for urban sorts of storytelling.
0: Yeah, it's all mixed together. And uh, the dungeon delving is going to come back up in just a little bit. But briefly about the, uh, the reclaimed zones and the devastation that separates them, it's extremely dangerous to travel through uh the devastated areas of the city. uh people try not to do it. uh there are um pathways and roads that will run through the devastation. so in order to connect places to one another they might have just, you know, pushed aside some of the wreckage in order to, you know, quickly run transportation between the two, you know, reclaimed areas. uh so these d- extremely dangerous areas Often are accompanied by hate cysts, and it sounds like anywhere that you have a devastated area, you're going to be finding hate cysts. It's just a matter of how active are they and what's the density. Uh, so hate cysts are extremely dangerous. They're leftover, hate-powered wounds from the war. They are likened to being cancerous, and if you think of the city as a living entity, which some people do, it it's fairly accurate. Uh, so the the hate cysts and devastated areas are are difficult to get through uh, because they have unstable architecture. It, they're also homes to brigands and thieves and other creatures, and you also have these hate cysts to deal with. Um, so you could have your um, outdoor exploration here uh, because these are ruined areas of the city. But you could also easily turn this into you know a, a dungeon delve. Because first of all, the hate cysts uh, cause an ever-present gloom to hang over the area that they're present in, so it gives them an underground feeling immediately. And of course, you're talking about the the bombed-out ruins of a city, so you might be, you know, trying to get into the basement of some old building where you know some artifact that you need to recover is located. So, in addition to that, you know, oppressive gloom that's always around. Hey, you've got you know, the remnants of a city all about you.
1: Yeah, I'm interested to find out whether the hate cysts are a cause or a consequence. Um, Are Mm -hmm. they the direct, are they the weapon themselves or the evidence of the weapon itself during this great war? Or was it something about the weapons that were used in the war that created the cysts independently? There's kind of interesting stories to tell about, uh, you know, warfare and its aftermath uh, using these hate cysts as an architectural representation of these stories.
0: Yeah, my impression is that these are going to be the the remnants of the weapons that were used in the war. But, hey, it's uh, it hasn't been defined yet, so who knows. Uh, we also have a governing body over the city of Saturn uh, called the Deathless Triumvirate. So these beings exist within the city and beyond it. So they have a dual nature. They have a, a physical presence that exists and lives in Saturn itself. There is a a massive citadel in the Marquis district. Um, and that is going to be towards the center of the city where they exist. Uh, and then there is also their ephemeral nature, which who knows where that exists. Uh, there's There's no specifics there, but... You can think of this as the body and the mind of the city. And if you think of it that way, then those hate cysts are tumors that the Deathless Triumvirate want to get removed. And if you think of the Deathless Triumvirate as the body and mind of the city, then Saturn itself is a living city trying to get these uh, you know, tumors removed from itself. Uh, and also one more note, uh, do you remember that angular serpentine that we talked about? The, uh, other world, well, the, yeah, I guess otherworldly entity, uh, it's still around. It's, it possesses Saturn as a, a demonic presence of sorts and whatever that might entail, I guess would be something fun to do in a campaign. Um where you have the Deathless Triumvirate who's trying to rebuild the city, uh, but then, hey, you have this Angular Serpentine that perhaps sees this as an opportunity for it to, you know, rise up and retake control of its environment and, you know, run things for a while.
1: It sounds like a potential big bad. Sure does. Then again, Deathless Triumvirate sounds like a big bad as well. Just the name itself.
0: Uh, A little bit. I mean, you had... uh... I don't remember if they were evil. There were the, the deathless elves in Eberron. I don't think they were quite evil, but they were, they were an interesting take on, you know, immortal beings, except they were dead. Mm-hmm. Well, deathless. <laughs> so uh, that's our overview of Saturn. And I think next we're going to be moving on to talk a little bit about some surreal TV shows.
1: Uh, that uh, seems to be a safe bet.
0: Anything else about Saturn before we go?
1: Uh, no, I think that pretty much covers it. There's a lot of information here for uh, in the uh, Kickstarter uh, update, uh, and yet the information seems to raise more questions than it answers.
0: Uh, I think another thing that would be good to look into would be Tolis, which was Monty Cook's big city setting that he had put together back when I want to say 3.5 or 3rd edition D&D was rolling. Uh, I haven't read through that myself, but hey, it was a big giant city setting with a lot of factions and stuff happening in it so it there might be some similarities between the two things
1: yeah it is an absolutely immense uh, s- uh setting yeah and <laughs> uh and it it also might be interesting to look at uh if not the the physical object itself uh to look at the you know, how it was the first time that he did a really super premium Product. Mm-hmm. The original Tolus came out in like a one hundred dollar version.
0: Yeah, I remember seeing that.
1: Yeah, I just pulled up my PDF copy of Tolus. It's eight hundred and eight pages.
0: Holy cows!
1: Yeah. Uh, so both as a premium uh, exotic RPG product, and as an urban setting that tries to integrate uh, dungeon delves and traditional fantasy tropes. Uh, I think it would be an interesting place to look for hints as to where uh, Monty Cook tends to tends to go when he develops these sorts of settings.
0: Hey, we've got you know a week until we record again, so maybe we should uh, take a look at Tolis. It's only it's 800 800, pages. eight hundred
1: pages. yeah. <laughs> uh, One hundred and fifty pages a day, and, and with some time to uh, reflect at the end, sounds perfect. In a distant light, pierces the mist we seek inspiration from other media for our Invisible Sun games. This time, we are reviewing several recent TV shows to get you thinking about the variety of ways you can represent surrealism in your games. In reflecting on uh, the kind of uh, potential discussion items for uh, A Distant Light Pierces the Mist, we, we've come up with a long list of potential television shows, movies, and other things to talk about. But the, the critical mass of current television shows is quite striking. So we thought we would do uh, a, a survey uh, of a variety of shows that are either recently aired or are currently airing uh, that might be particularly useful as a guide to uh, surreal elements uh, and surreal storytelling that you can pull out for uh, Invisible Sun games. We might revisit some of these uh, in more depth, uh, but it seemed like with the the number of them present right now, it was worth doing a bit of an overview to talk about uh, several of them at one time. There's no order to this necessarily. It's just the randomness of, of what came on our list. Uh, but one that has just started in this part of the actuality, uh, it will have been running for quite a while by the time this uh, gets to your ears, I'm sure, um, is American Gods uh, on, I believe it's stars. Let's say it's yeah, stars. Yeah, Star sounds right. American Gods is an adaptation of a Neil Gaiman novel uh, uh, of the same name. Uh, This, uh, Neil Gaiman, is the same Neil Gaiman who wrote The Sandman that we've talked about in previous uh, episodes. And in some ways, this is his great American novel, uh, of course, written by uh, a a Brit. Uh, (laughs) uh, But uh, the television show is definitely embracing the surreal nature of the uh, the source material. Uh, I won't I will seek to avoid spoiling much in the of the key secrets of the novel or of the uh, presumably the television show, um, and this will it'll be easy to avoid those spoilers in in this discussion. But the title is itself a bit of a spoiler if you aren't paying much attention. Um, the show is about gods wandering America, and it becomes clear very early in the book and in the television show that a lot of gods of different traditions have immigrated. Uh, to the United States, uh, they have become American gods, and they are simultaneously kind of le- looking for support for their core concepts, and in conflict themselves uh, with emerging American gods like uh, of new technologies and new lifestyles that are challenging old ways. And so the core conflict of the novel is in some ways about the transition of old gods and new gods wandering America, and what rep- which of them represents in what ways the true nature of America. This is all, pretty much an inherently surreal concept to begin with, because it integrates magic into the real world. And it directly addresses the comparison of magic and the real world. Uh, there's a lot you could draw from this uh, particular uh, uh, a series. Uh, uh, t- maybe not so much in terms of plot, but maybe even some of that. Uh, but some of the, the techniques that it uses to emphasize the comparison, I think, would be useful. It relies, for example, quite a bit on dream scenes. Characters learn a lot about themselves and their predicaments through dreams, and each of the dreams are populated by symbols, and each of the symbols has important uh, meaning to the character. They reflect the identity of the character. They reflect the identity of other characters in the story, and they even have prophetic implications. Uh, and that's a technique that is pretty common in surreal storytelling, uh, and and just handled magnificently uh, in this current uh, television run of American Gods.
0: Uh, how how would that compare to like what the, they did with dream scenes in The Sopranos?
1: Um, I gave up on The Sopranos after season one, <laughs> so I I'm not qualified to answer that question. Though I'd be interested in hearing your perspective on it.
0: Well, I haven't seen American Gods yet, but The Sopranos did a whole lot of stuff with dreams, like weird dreams here and there. Um, so I was just curious because The Sopranos is a way more grounded show uh, than American Gods, I'm guessing, is.
1: Well, American Gods so far, and I'm only uh, an episode into it, uh, is mostly grounded The uh, with punctuations of dramatic magical circumstances that are made all the more dramatic by uh, the comparison to what is most of the time a grounded uh, realist uh, representation of the world. Hmm. But the dream scenes in particular are, are, are you know, are, are a common technique in this show, but in a variety mm-hmm. of shows, some we'll talk about even in, on this list, uh, to kind of allow the director and the writer to go wild with the surrealism then they're not bound by uh, any sense of reality. They are not even necessarily bound by narrative cohesion. They can just have a sparse uh, scene with two or three notable objects, but those objects just drip with meaning. Uh, mm-hmm. And characters don't have to necessarily make sense or be in a, pre- a predicament that makes sense. It is enti- It exists entirely to communicate some point to the character. Uh, it's a common trope in literature and film and, and television sure. show. It's just exceptionally well executed so far in American Gods. And I think it's one of the things to, you could draw from most easily from this television show. Well, that's cool. And even the the core concept, uh, again, the, the, the central theme, uh, another way of, of describing that theme would be uh, the power of belief and faith. And we don't know a lot about what the recommended core conflicts are in the setting for Invisible Sun. But given the uh, what we've seen so far, uh, it, it seems like one potential core conflict is uh, an exploration of what belief and, real, uh, belief and faith are, and a sense that magic is a representation of how reality, with a capital R, is a reflection of faith and magic, And that what we think of as our real world with a lowercase r is an impoverished and limited view. And so the the game does seem to privilege the power of belief and faith uh, as a basis of reality over uh, our mundane senses. And that's also something that comes out in American Gods is is that these these gods are, are in some sense competing for and relying upon faith and belief. Uh, the the main character's kind of conflict is a loss of faith and belief that he rediscovers through the uh, arc, maybe, <laughs> of the uh, TV show uh, and the novel. Uh, of course, all of the interesting parts are how all of that happens. But the power of belief and faith are uh, is a key part of the show, and I think it'll be a key part of a lot of Invisible Sun stories.
0: One last question about American Gods do they go to wisconsin
1: they spend time in the midwest i don't recall which state exactly i would have to look that up the great lakes community of lakeside
0: Mm. yeah that sounds made up
1: yep it probably is made up oh well uh but it tries to capture the spirit of the midwest anyway so (laughs) uh jumping back or starting back again uh, i'll just transition to twin peaks if that's okay Another show that's about to restart in this part of the actuality is Twin Peaks. Uh, I This is a show I watched back in high school, which dates me uh, and the show to some extent, one or the other. Uh, and I never would have imagined I'd be talking about a new season of Twin Peaks.
0: <laughs> no kidding.
1: It's starting up very soon here. Uh, and it also is... Uh, I only have experience with the original series because the new one hasn't started yet, Uh, an example of surrealism and storytelling. And it made quite a splash when it was initially aired in the uh, early 90s. And that splash was in part because of how unfamiliar people were with surrealism and surreal storytelling. So it was quite a shock to a lot of people who were used to tuning in their televisions uh, for uh, a drama on a weeknight and finding something like, uh, you know, a, a traditional drama or a soap opera or something along those lines. And instead of uh, Dallas or Falcon Crest or whatever the soap operas were of the time, they got a surreal television show called Twin Peaks. Sure did. And it blew a lot of people's minds. Um, it starts with a investi- an investigation. Uh, uh, into the mysterious death of a high school student from this small uh, 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 forestry town, I guess it would be a uh, uh, lumber town, um, in the northwest of the United States. And uh, through the investigation, a lot of weird history and characters and elements of the town are revealed. Uh, And it has become sort of, you know, a, a, a. a touchdown for a touchstone for people who uh, are trying to understand David Lynch and his techniques. Um, it was not exclusively after Twin Peaks, but a- almost uniformly after Twin Peaks. Uh, David Lynch has be- has used surrealism as his mode of uh, movie making and storytelling. Uh, and this is this is where he was most noticed uh, for that work. Did you watch this back in the day?
0: Uh, no, I sure didn't. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember this aired like in 92.
1: Oh, I think it might've been earlier than that.
0: It was early nineties, I think. So I don't think it was late eighties, but who knows? Um, I'm not looking it up right now. Uh, but no, I didn't watch it back in the day. Uh, I did watch it more recently. Um, I want to say last year. I I watched the whole first season and started to watch the second season. So if any of you are interested in catching up on Twin Peaks before uh, the new season comes out, definitely watch that first season and, I don't know, just get the highlights from the second season because it's not great.
1: Yeah, this is a job for Wikipedia. Uh, yeah. Because uh, when we were watching season two, we described it as subplot hell because all the characters went in different directions and nothing seemed to matter. Yeah. And then they tried to bring it around for the last three or four episodes. So it might be best to just read through on Wikipedia and maybe catch the last few episodes if if you're interested. Uh, I, I was able to check. Uh, I, I got a report back from my uh, uh, agents in the actuality and they are telling mm-hmm. me it premiered in April of 1990.
0: 1990. Wow. Yeah, I think my parents might have actually watched this one, but I did not. Uh, I was almost in high school.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so some of the surreal elements of this include uh, the characters are exaggerated and somewhat unrealistic. Okay, more than somewhat unrealistic. They're highly unrealistic.
0: Um, Every single one of them.
1: <laughs> they're all strange in some way. The The lead character is an FBI agent, Agent Cooper, and he is peculiar, uh, he seems to know things he shouldn't know. He seems to uh, be obsessed with various occult and and, and uh, peculiar um, knowledge. Yeah, and, that's
0: right. I totally forgot about that.
1: And and he uh, doesn't have a, a well-described history, um, but just seems out of place, not just in Twin Peaks, but on Earth.
0: Yeah, he's always happy.
1: And, and he does... He's always happy. He is is thrilled by the most mundane things, including pie and And coffee.
0: coffee.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, But really, all the characters are unusual in different ways. We don't need to describe all of them here. Uh, But an example of that might not be so obvious is that for some reason, all of the teenagers are like they're... um, They were sent from some sort of uh, uh, bizarre 1950s movie. Mm Mm-hmm. So a... A TV show that's set in contemporary times of early 1990s, but in the Northwest, uh, but is populated by a bunch of teenagers that seem to be from a 19, you know, displaced from the 1950s, except they don't really act like they're from the 1950s. They just dress like it. They use mm-hmm. some of the language of the 1950s. Uh, and they, but they also certainly... listen
0: to smoky jazz.
1: Yes. Uh, but we'll say. Uh, the plot involves a lot of their behaviors that certainly would would have been out of place in the films of, ni- of the nineteen fifties. It's not to say people didn't do bad things in the nineteen fifties, uh, but mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it 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 certainly seems to be more uh, con- contemporary teen problems in the nineteen nineties. Except these are you know again teenagers that act like and are dressed like and speak like the nineteen fifties, which may. Uh, return to a theme lynch has has explored in some of his, his films most notably um blue velvet about sort of the illusion of normalcy and mm-hmm. the 1950s is kind of what normalcy was taught to him yeah <laughs> it's like what that was the image of normalcy and he mm-hmm. sought to reveal how that was an illusion and there was a lot of bad stuff going on that was covered up by this illusion of normalcy well the same thing is going on in twin peaks where you have these uh strangely out of time throwback teenagers <laughs> Uh, but they're, they're, that image is covering up a lot of bad behaviors um, on the part of these teenagers. And so it, it draws into question whether that normalcy was ever normal, whether that normal normalcy ever represented any sort of moral purity as it had been, as it had been ex- expressed through things like Leave it to Beaver and the movies and sitcoms of the 1950s about uh, idealized suburban life.
0: So you might... Take something like that into *Invisible Sun* and say, "This appears normal, but this norm, uh, this normal sense is unsettling to some degree."
1: Right, the, the hyper-normal uh, aspect of the 1950s teenagers really serves to exaggerate their non—you know—the the behaviors that don't fit the stereotype. Yeah. So I don't think it's great spoilers to say they're involved in things like drugs, let's say. Not a big surprise in a drama yeah. in the 1990s. That doesn't fit the 50s narrative. And so by having these characters talk like and look like they're 1950s teenagers, having ma- you know, a major part of the story be about a drug ring creates a, a surreal dissonance between the nature of the characters and the story that they're telling that draws an even stronger contrast than would otherwise be the case. And that's one of the techniques of surrealism then is to exaggerate the normal and the real as a way to draw a, a greater contrast with the surreal element that you want to focus on.
0: Yeah. And I think that's probably the more subtle surrealism that's in Twin Peaks uh, because you have dream logic in Twin Peaks as, le- as well, uh, just like American gods. Right. Uh, you have the Black Lodge, you have the the iconic backwards talking uh, I mean, you have all of that that's been spoofed and it is when it when it first aired, it was really weird and very strange to see, you know, scenes where Agent Cooper is listening to people talk backwards in strange riddles that make no sense in a bizarre set that, you know, doesn't look like anything else in the show.
1: Right, and that's also a place to look at for visually uh, surreal uh, storytelling. And you have the, the Black Lodge is represented as a series of rooms that are indescript because they all of the walls have drapes on them for the most part. Mm-hmm. But the people populating the Black Lodge, they some yeah you know, one of them speaks backwards. They move strangely, uh, and you know, it is certainly the most surreal element of the show. And so that's a place to look if you want to you kind of want to get a, a, a quick start on what sort of surreal elements are present in Twin Peaks.
0: Do we have time for more shows?
1: I think we've got time for a couple more shows that we'll discuss in in less detail.
0: why don't why don't you just hop on down to um, adventure time?
1: Okay, we'll just go there and that'll probably take up the the uh, the rest of the time. though we'll have to circle back some other time to talk about the wonderful recent season of Legion. Check oh, it out if yes. you have not. Uh, yeah, I, I kind
0: of want to sit on that until it's less of a spoiler to talk about parts of it.
1: That's fair. Uh, also, the second season of The Magicians just wrapped up, uh, and it has some very specific surreal elements that might be fun to borrow, though I think we might be able to talk about them more in the context of what magic is and stories cool. about magic. So Adventure Time, uh, for a complete change of pace.
0: As of I've never seen to... this show.
1: <laughs> um, It's I think it could be inspiring for a specific type of story. So Adventure Time is a, car- a children's cartoon. Uh, at least it's advertised primarily to children uh, on Cartoon Network. It's been running for several seasons now. The seasons are released somewhat irregularly, so it's, it's kind of hard to keep track of when seasons begin and end. But there's it's, it's a long-running cartoon series. The cartoon takes place in a surreal setting. It is the post-apocalyptic land of... Ooh, uh, the land of Oo uh, has sprung up in the wake of the uh, the Great Mushroom War. I think is what they called it. Hmm. In the if you watch the visuals and don't listen to the audio so much, the Great Mushroom War is clearly a reference to mushroom clouds. Sure. And so it is a you know post apocalyptic, super distant setting. Uh, maybe not quite Numenera future, but something along those that, those, those lines. Uh, no, and it's that they... just the
0: second second civilization.
1: Maybe, uh, and this is a uh, a, a quite uh, bizarre civilization. Uh, most of the people, for example, seem to be anthropomorphic candies and treats. So you've got like talking sn- uh, snow cones, uh, or c- pieces of cake, or candies. Those are the characters for the most part, uh, and they are their candy nature comes up sometimes in the story, uh, but is very rarely treated directly.'re they're just they're just people who happen to be the shape of candies. And so you, you already have a physical representation of the sur- of the surreal element of the story that you have the bodies of the characters shaped in ways that are simultaneously familiar as objects but unfamiliar as characters. The main characters are the only, or at least maybe only for some of the show, human and, and a magical talking dog with superpowers. And there isn't so much a, a single arc over the whole show. Instead, it is a mostly episodic, though not entirely episodic, uh, story about this human and, and, uh, and the magical talking dog that go on a, ver- a series of adventures. Uh, it's respected for its depth of character development, which one might ex- not expect from a, a cartoon advertised pr- primarily to children. The characters seem pretty shallow at first, very, you know, either archetypal or flat, depending on your perspective. Uh, but the personalities of the characters end up being the most real part of the show. It, the, the show can really catch people off guard. My wife, I, I was watching this and trying to catch up because I'd heard such good things about it. My wife's only seen a handful of episodes, but she came in on one um, little 15 minute episode and was just found it emotionally devastating. She's like, mm-hmm. I don't know who these characters are. I don't watch this show, but it was an emotional experience just to watch this one episode about this cartoon character that at any given time looks like he's comedic relief, but the character was so well-written uh, that and the, the, the character development seemed real and you felt the emotional impact of it. So the the show is, is surreal in a strange way, I guess some, somewhat funny to say. Um, the setting is surreal. It's unrealistic. It is exaggerated. You've got candy people and these ge- geographies that are, are exaggerated and, and, and impossible. Um, you've But the core characters, in some ways the personalities, are very realistic, which cr- makes the contrast with the unrealistic setting uh, all the more interesting. And it might even increase the impact of the realistic personalities and character development to have placed these developments in such an unreal setting. Hmm. Uh, You could borrow from this anything from the kind of visual surreal style, which is in some ways spare or minimal uh, as animation goes, uh, but vivid and has these strong exaggerated elements. Uh, or you could borrow that that technique of of juxtaposing the real personalities uh, with the cartoonish surreal setting and then consider like how do how would real people like their identities their personalities behave in a world that had gone crazy in a world that was shaped by un under, you know incomprehensible rules how do we interact that? Especially the in, in the all of these characters take these the setting is, as given. This isn't traumatic to them. This is the world. And mm-hmm. so how do realistic people live in a world that isn't realistic? And that's that is in itself sort of a surrealistic premise.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: And they also play a bit with fantasy tropes. So you since you have it's called Adventure Time. Uh, so as you mm-hmm. might guess, the human and the dog go on adventures. That's, it's exaggerated to the point where they, it's a meta-commentary. They make fun of themselves for how they conceptualize adventures. Uh, but it, it includes a lot of fantasy tropes and exploration of these fantasy tropes. Uh, so you can also sort of uh, mine it for uh, story ideas uh, uh, and the basic plot uh, arc for different fantasy stories. Uh, because even if they're kind of played for humor here and pitched to children here, uh, the, the quality of the storytelling and the sophistication of plotting that goes into the, the, the show is so advanced that you could learn a lot from it. If you could strip away some of the Cartoon Network aspects uh, and focus on the, the, the essences of the story.
0: Uh, that sounds pretty cool. And with uh, just 15-minute chunks, that sounds like something that would be pretty easily to, easy to do.
1: Yes. And there's many, many episodes. I believe it is available on Hulu.
0: Cool. Yeah, and all of these should be pretty easy to find right now. Uh, American Gods is just airing. Twin Peaks is going to have a new uh, season coming out if it's not out already by the time our show comes out. Uh, so you should be able to find that. I think it's been on Netflix. It might still be there.
1: I believe it is. And they're airing reruns on on Showtime in anticipation of the new season.
0: Yeah, that's right. The new the new season new seasons gonna be on Showtime. Um, but yeah, there are options to, to get this stuff without uh, you know torrenting it. so go find it.
1: This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from Drive RPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at drscottrobinson on Twitter.
0: And you can find me at underscore red on Twitter. So leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. We hear it helps people find the show. Uh, or tell a friend about the show, and that would be another great way to help us out. Thanks.